Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. Feeling a little bit under the weather. My allergies are acting up, so if I sound stuffy, that's why I feel like I have to make this disclaimer quite a bit lately. So to start this one off, first things first, uh, anybody that follows my website, I'm trying to get a list going for all of the tarantula breeders, vendors, dealers, whatever you want to call them, state by state. Obviously, with the Sri Lankan Pisilotheria, ruling it is now illegal to ship certain species across state lines and then there are some other things cooking that have caused quite a bit of a ruckus in the hobby that i'm not going to address because i think it's something that just needs to be you know left alone and let to die down but the problem is that there are these are changes to the hobby uh, we've pretty much been able to order whatever we wanted from wherever we wanted or from whom we've ever wanted for quite some time and now suddenly we have five species that we can only get in our own states legally so what i think would i, I would like to do going ahead and I'm, I'm really hoping people help me out on this one is i'm trying to compile this list it will cover all the states and basically i want to keep it going it'll be a running list so as people find new places we can add to it but to start to name some of the people out there and some of the businesses that deal in tarantulas to make sure that folks, when they are looking and want to procure these animals legally, can find the ones that they can go to in their own states. And this can be very difficult because, from what I understand and even knowing with my own state, there aren't a lot of dealers out there. So trying to locate people, even if it's you know breeders, some people do a lot of breeding and they sell them out. So breeders that breed these Pisilotheria species now can only sell them in their own state. So they're going to be looking to try to line up, I'm assuming, waiting lists of people who are interested in acquiring them. And I'll tell you, I'm really worried because I had a lot of species I planned to breed and those Pisilotheria were on the list. And now I've got to try to find people that are interested to warrant having that many slings of that species. Because if I breed these and nobody wants them, I'm stuck with them. I have to take care of them. And I've already got a big enough collection. So unfortunately, I'm very worried this is going to deter many folks from actually attempting to breed these species as opposed to what, what we want is the opposite. We want folks breeding them. We want folks trading for breeding loans so that we can keep the stock fresh. But I'm really worried they're just going to basically disappear within the next five you know, to ten years, maybe even less, as people stop breeding them and some of the older specimens start to die off. So hopefully if we can get something going ahead of time, it will encourage not only folks to buy these species if they can find them in their own states, but also encourage folks to breed them if they know there's a waiting list. Because bottom line, I'm, I've got some I'm looking to breed now, and I had a guy correspond with the other day, asked me if I had any. I'm seriously thinking I have a female or not that after the next molt should be ready to go of breeding them but I need to line up customers first this is I can't just sell these like I do with most of my slings off to you know Tanya fear not or somebody else wholesale I'm going to have to sell them myself in my state which means I got to find enough people that actually want them which is going to be difficult and I have to be completely honest if there's only a couple people that are interested in them then I'm probably not going to pursue that breeding project because as much as I want to keep these guys going in my state I really don't have the time or means to take care of you know what could be 50 100 tarantula slings of Pironata you know they get quite big as they get older so Please, if you have a moment, I'm going to throw this one up on Facebook, but I'd also encourage people, I'm trying to keep this as consolidated as possible because I, because hopefully if enough people respond to it, it's it's going to be a, a pretty decent size undertaking and 
organization isn't necessarily my strong suit. So I've already got kind of a chart made out for it on Excel so I can fill these in. And what will happen is as this list starts to grow, we will continue to add to it. I will monitor. I'm going to research some of these people to make sure they have good reviews because just having somebody in your state is one thing if it's like backwater reptiles and forget about it. So we want to make sure that the people that we're putting on this list are reputable. And as we start finding gaps, I'm going to be putting calls out. So, all right, you know, Oregon, we, we need more people. We have nobody for you. What, who do you have there? Can people from that state help me out? So hopefully the hobby comes together, helps me out with this one. I would like to have a list together by the end of the month or so. Eh, but we'll say about a month. I'd like to have the preliminary one done, and then we will continue to add to it. And I'm hoping that once I get the actual list done and do another, you know, I'll send this out to the people that follow my blog and, and do something on the podcast, Facebook, and obviously my um, YouTube channel. I'm hoping we'll get more response then, but really need to build this thing up because right now there's four species of Pizzolitharia and, and I can't, it, it sucks for lack of a better term. Sorry about that, but I'm not happy about it. I think a lot of people aren't happy about it, especially fans of pokies. However, it, it could grow in the future. We don't know. There could be more pokies added to it. I, you know, there were more pokies on the original report. Who knows if they go back and, you know, P. Metallica is one that's mentioned quite a bit as being one that will eventually find itself in the same situation in the United States. So really, I think it would be prudent to be proactive and start putting together this list now. Not necessarily proactive because we've already got uh, five banned, but I've, I've actually, while speaking to some hobbyists, <laughs> kind of blows my mind a bit, but uh, there's been some apathy to this. Like, oh, well, I don't you know collect pokies anyway, or oh, well, I'll just collect the other ones. And that kind of scares me because this could happen, trust me, there are bigger things looming than just the Pisolotheria species and species that aren't just, you know, ones kept by a handful of collectors. I know pokies seem to be an acquired taste and uh, a lot of folks don't buy them because of they're, you know, quite frankly afraid of them because of the bad reputations. But there are other species that could make their way onto this. This could, hopefully it's not, this could be something that's kind kind of a harbinger of, you know, the horrible things to come as far as species bans in the U.S. hobby. So again, my international friends, people who follow me and, and listen to the podcast, I apologize, apologize for you know making it all U.S. centric there, but it is important for us to try to make sure we maintain the hobby over here because we have basically relied on other countries for so long, and now we're in a spot where we're going to have to rely on people in just our own states to keep these things supplied. So. Hopefully, we get some feedback from that. So far, I'm getting a pretty good response, but I'll be honest, I was kind of hoping for more, and I think part of it is people don't know what's in their own state right now, and that's completely understandable. But hopefully, some people will help me out here, do some research, because it's just going to be with you know, all the states, obviously. It's going to take me some time to go through it, and I am kind of looking things up, but it would be great if I could get a, you know, a good foundation to start from and build on it from there. So going back to last week's podcast, my new thing is I like to revisit the comments from last week and the part about the B. albopelosum Nicaragua species, again, just to fill in anybody that might not have listened to last week's episode yet. I don't know if people ever listen to them out of order or whatnot, but um, I had somebody comment on a YouTube video basically telling me that um, I was negligent for putting keepers in harm's way for the two Brachypelma albopelosum, uh, what was it, care guides I did on YouTube videos, and I was kind of taken aback by that because this person seemed to be insinuating that the Brachypelma albopelosum Nicaragua was basically, honestly, the way he described it was almost like an OBT. They were vicious, they needed room to hide, that the way I was keeping them, there were going to be keepers that were going to get bitten and turned off from the hobby, and 
firstly just giggled and thought it was a troll. And again, I did the whole thing on trolling, and I think there are some trolls that are out there just literally to, you know, get you going and try to aggravate you, and they'll say whatever crap they can to get you upset. And then I think there are some trolls that just have no idea what they're talking about. They firmly believe in the crap they're peddling, but just don't, they're not going to listen to reason and that makes them a troll because it's like you can argue until you're blue in the face, they're not going to change your opinions. And it sounds like this guy was probably in that category. But I did because, again, I think it's very important that anybody that's doing videos or educational things about tarantulas keeps current and keeps an open mind. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of us fall into these comfortable patterns where we do something For years, we assume it's right, and we never stop to consider or look to see if there's some other way we could be doing it. So, for example, when I first got into the hobby, everything was kept on straight vermiculite. That was what everybody did. You put down a couple inches of vermiculite. You usually moistened one side whether the thing needed it or not, and that was all there was to it. And my G. rosea was kept like that for years, never thought twice of it. As a matter of fact, um, when I went to change the substrate out after having her for several years, I actually had to hunt down vermiculite because this was during the time period where they had mixed vermiculite with asbestos and it had been basically taken off the market for a while. You couldn't find it anywhere. And I remember freaking out because, oh, my spider needs vermiculite. My spider needs vermiculite. It wasn't until years later when I really got deep into the hobby that I realized that nobody was keeping them on vermiculite anymore. So I think a lot of us fall into that trap and do that. And my concern is some people find information and they, you know, there's the people, the regurgitators, the ones that they pick it up from somebody else, they assume it must be right, and then they put it out there as their own. And sometimes that information is incorrect. And then there are just people that peddle the same thing year after year after year and don't ever stop to think, is there a better way to do this and aren't open-minded about it? So back to that point, when I get a troll, it's not just, all right, this guy is an idiot. I know what I'm talking about. Hey, I'm Tom's Big Spiders. Who is he to tell me? It's That never crosses my mind. It's usually first I respond to the tone. So if somebody's like, hey, Tom, um, I, I tried something a little different. It worked for me. That's awesome. That's I'm going to listen to that. And I've had people give me tips before and I've, you know, basically I've credited them for it because I didn't come up with this. This is something somebody else did and it's great and I love that. And then there's situations like, you idiot, what are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And those are the ones that I tend to want to ignore, but you never know if there's a good piece of information there. Some people are just, you know, tactless online and so being able to see through that and look at, all right, what is this guy saying? Is there any merit to this? And then following up and investigating it. And that's pretty much what I did with this because, again, I only have one of the Nicaraguans. It should be a Nicaraguan. Um, but I have not seen any difference from my hobby form or the ones that have been sold as the Honduran curly hairs. But that's one spider. Who am I to say? And a lot of people will fall into this trap. Well, my spider does this, this, and this. So therefore, universally, that must be what the species does. I see it a lot with um, certain species that don't make it onto my beginner species list. For example, the Calcotas, the Fonapelma Calcotas, I never put on my list because I've had two of them, and both of them were pretty skittish. Uh, one of them would kick hairs at the drop of a dime and would literally threat pose you anytime it got the chance. The other one is incredibly skittish, runs and hides, does not want to be held. However, other people have the cuddly ones, and it seems to be one of those species like uh, G. Porteri slash Rosea, or it's going to end up being Rosea, but seems to have a reputation for either being really, really tractable and tame or nuts. Well, it's kind of the same thing with these guys, although I, it seems like even more so because I have a lot more people tell me that theirs are wacky. So that was a species I kept off the list, but I will have people go, oh, I kept one. It's the nicest one I've ever had. you got to put that on the list, not thinking that maybe theirs might be the anomaly. So... 
long story short, I put it out there for you all to find out what are you seeing with your Nicaraguas, and overwhelmingly, it, there's no difference. I've had a lot of people chime in, and I truly appreciate it because this is this allows me to go forward and put this information out there and feel comfortable about it as opposed to after having this interaction with this guy, I started thinking, oh gosh, I hope that's not the case because then I just misinform people and that would really kill me. So it sounds like the most, we had one person come on and say that there's were was a little bit crazy, but um, we have here Helen pa- Patterson. I have two Bialpopolos in Nicaragua. They're both super docile and timid. Excellent. Um, we have one here, unfortunately. This is Jessica Kurth. Um, also, I do have a psycho Nicaraguan Bialbo. Maybe I must just won the T lottery LOL. She was definitely a handful at first because she was only the second T I'd gotten at the time. She loves to threat pose and strike when I'm changing her water dish and has bolted out of the enclosure on more than one occasion. I'm hoping she chills out once she molts. And there you go. That's the type of thing I'm looking for because that's something that I could mention in a video like, hey, just to let you know, a handful of people have seen, you know, different temperaments. But I usually say that anyway. I mean, my big thing is with the beginner species, there it varies specimen to specimen. It, you can have the most, you know, tame, calm species in the world nine out of ten times. It's that tenth one that throws people off and, you know, kind of can – Especially if you're new to the hobby, it can kind of be a turnoff when you think you got the most cuddly spider available and it's a psycho. So thanks for responding, everybody that responded to that. I also had somebody that emailed, and I, I can't seem to find the email right now, but said that he had raised a couple sacks of them, had seen no difference whatsoever. So thank you to all who wrote it, took the time to leave a comment or email and let me know so I can feel confident going ahead. Maybe I'll do another update on these and just kind of mention that and, and tell people, you know, bottom line. And I, again, I say this with everything, it all depends on the specimens. Some are just like people. You have, you know, some people that are fantastically nice. You have some that are jerks and go trolling people online. So there we go. Moving off from that one now, the next topic I would like to talk about a little bit because for some odd reason, I'm getting a lot of questions about it lately, is substrate. Now, I think I've covered this one before, but since then there have been some changes in my own collection, what I'm using, and I do think it, it you know, it warrants repeating and kind of going through it again. So I apologize. Yes, this is going to be a bit of a podcast about dirt, but there, you know, I do think it's it's an incredibly important part of the hobby. If you think about it, we get our spiders, then we have to figure out what kind of enclosure we're going to put it in. And the next big thing is what kind of dirt are we going to put it on? So although I'll touch on the different types of substrates, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But one thing I do want to make clear, and I don't know if it's coming across in the videos and the articles I write, but I do not use really different types of substrate depending on the the species I'm working with. For example, it's not like I use cocoa fiber for one thing and peat for another. Generally, whatever I'm using is what I'm using. What does change is the amount of vermiculite I add to the mix or if I add a bit of sand to it. Whatever the additives and the quantity of additives I add to. That sounds redundant. That was like an Austin Powers moment there. The quantity of the additives I mix into the base substrate can change, but it's still the same mixture. So for years... I've used topsoil with various degrees of vermiculite. I was putting peat in it for some time, but peat seemed to be giving me that weird uh, dog vomit fungus or whatever it's called. It was getting that out of the peat, which I started using the peat because supposedly the peat was too acidic to keep 
uh, to sustain any of that fungus, and that's not what I found. And I have a lot of people tell me if you want to get rid of the fungus, you know, get the peat. But this bag I had was growing mushrooms. It was growing the yellow fungus. It was those mushrooms that you can literally watch grow. That's one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in my life. And sometimes I have to admit to letting them grow just to see how quickly they get big because it's like nothing on or nothing natural should grow that large i had one literally it was a little nubbin in the morning and by the evening it was pressed against the top of the enclosure six inches away that's just creepy but here's the deal there are a lot of things out there and none are necessarily right or wrong personally i used the topsoil mix for years just mixed it with the vermiculite however recently i had an issue that's been pretty well documented in the podcast at least i don't know if i touched upon it too much in the on the youtube channel but I have a what I believe was a bag of tainted substrate, and I'm not sure what was in it. I'm guessing a type of fertilizer or herbicide. I'm not sure what it was, but basically every animal I put on this substrate died, and it didn't take very long. Um, I, the, it was depressing. It's still something that bothers me because I... I who knew? I've used substrate for years without incident, and this one bag, it just I it basically wiped out my entire colony of assassin bugs. I had basically rehoused them in this beautiful new enclosure. I put down this substrate, and then I had some babies. I took them out, put them on the same substrate. The babies were dead in a week. It was like unreal. And by the time I moved them out, it was too late. I had tarantulas, most of which died either right after a molt, some died in the molt, or some just were never able to, able to molt and just died. So it seemed to be something that inhibited or threw off the molting process, but it ended up costing me a lot of animals. It was the biggest die-off I've ever had in my collection. It shook me. It shook my um, confidence as far as dealing with these. I had to really, and sadly, it's, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm public with it, and it really bothered me. So since then, I've been a little gun-shy with the dirt. Now, it was bags that I had bought because the place I usually get them, I usually get them from Lowe's or Home Depot. They tend to pack up their dirt around uh, late fall, and you can't get it from them. So I had run out of my stockpile. I bought some a bunch of bags right before they had packed it away, and I ran out. So I picked up a bag of Agway, and everything I put on it died. So it was definitely this Agway substrate. I don't know what was in it, but one of the bags I threw out because I found the little green the capsules that they use for fertilizer in it and it was loaded with them we're not talking like one or two or three it was loaded and the substrate if you squeezed it green came out of it now i've had people say ah, i've used that stuff before it doesn't really bother them but there seemed to be an awful lot of chemical in that one so god only knows what was in the bag but i've shied away from using that for the time being and i switched over i buy these huge 10 pound bricks of cocoa fiber cost me about 15 to 17 dollars i get them off amazon so you know how their prices fluctuate but they hydrate they make a huge chunk, probably probably worth about two or three bags of topsoil. So a little more expensive, but a lot of stuff. And I mix that with vermiculite various degrees for my enclosures. Now, I use a substrate, the cocoa fiber substrate when I first started out years ago. And I liked it for some things, but the burrowing species is where it really falls apart. And what I'm looking to do is start adding excavator clay to it. Unfortunately, that can also be quite pricey. If you get it at Petco, they jack the price way up. You can usually buy 10-pound bags if you search around. They're like $7, $8. But if you get them on Amazon or Petco, they're like 20 something. Um, so I am looking for a cheap source of that for anybody that knows, you know, clean the excavator's clay because I'm also getting a bunch of scorpions, more scorpions in that I like to use that with. So there are things you can add to the cocoa fiber to make it better. Plus, one thing that people have been very, very concerned with is burrows collapsing. I had somebody ask me about they're getting a G. pulchra and they're like, I'm aware that these burrow is slings, but I'm worried about the fluffy consistency 
of the cocoa fiber that the burrows will collapse on them. And, and rest assured, they do, the spiders at least, the tarantulas, will go in and when they dig their burrows, they basically web up the hole inside and make a little sock that holds everything together. So I wouldn't worry about that. And even if it collapses, it's so fluffy, they dig right out. But I haven't had many issues with that. Where I am running into issues with it is I have a couple burrowing scorpions that I have on it. And unfortunately, scorpions, unless they've evolved, do not web. So they have nothing to reinforce it with. So then we have some issues there with it collapsing. And they're probably annoyed that they keep having to redig their burrow. So cocoa fiber works great. You can find this, the horticultural stuff that has no additives online. You want to look for the stuff that's been washed that doesn't have salt in it. Because a lot of these places, they... they laid out and I've actually seen pictures of it just laying out on beaches where they're you know drying out and everything so you want to make sure there's no salt in it because that could desiccate your tea you really don't need that in there but there's places you can get it for very cheap and it works well you just have to what my tip to people is is rehydrate it before you need it if, if you're buying the stuff in a brick and you need it right away it's probably it's going to be a pain in the butt you're gonna to have to do some baking you can put it in a turkey pan in the oven on high heat and bake it or lower heat and bake it and basically dry it out but it takes forever it does give the house a nice smoky smell to it but just prepare it ahead of time and then as far as topsoil is concerned i'm going to be honest i'm staying away from it for a little while but it's a more psychological thing with me like i can rationally go through and realize i have probably used well over 100 bags of topsoil since i started using it and never had an issue and this one time i had the issue so is it likely that using topsoil is going to end up with a you're going to end up with a bunch of dead spiders? No, I don't think it is at all as evidenced by how many I've used without any problem. However, there's always people that come to me and it was always in the back of my mind that you're never quite sure where they got that topsoil from. And they can just slap organic, they can slap no additives on it, but if they just took it from a place where they're doing a construction site where they just basically sprayed down to fertilize the grass or if there was something going on before they were dumping chemical in there, you never quite know so there's always that's I, I think it's a minute risk but there's always that risk as evidenced by the ones that died off in my own collection that that's been tainted so something to keep in mind but again I don't like causing panic I've used it I've got a bag in my garage right now I picked up some of the Timberline which I've never had an issue with I have also used the Scots again after this issue they're all fine now several of them have molted again so I think the trick is if you're going to use topsoil stick to a brand that you can trust that you haven't had any issues with the Scots tends to be filled with little sticks and stuff but it really doesn't matter honestly I've heard people say you got to filter them out and I used to filter them out now I just kind of I'll take out the big chunks or anything really bad but leave it in there it's kind of what they used to walking around around the wild and just make sure you stick with that and don't grab any agway apparently and so and definitely don't grab anything that says it has fertilizers added you want to stay away from stuff that says it has animal feces added they will add i believe it's uh chicken manure to add the phosphate content so you want to stay away from anything with additives and stick with a brand you trust again i can rec recommend timberline that was recommended to me from a guy that was on arachnoboards that was on for years that swore by the stuff um really dirt cheap no pun intended and works great so yes i will go back to using i, I have some burrowing species that i just don't like the cocoa fiber for plus winter is coming up i'm going to be running the heater and that's where this stuff really starts to you know become an issue for me because although it if you mix it especially if you mix it with some vermiculite it really sucks the water up quickly which is great however it also loses the water quickly it evaporates out of it so when i used to use the cocoa fiber i had a terrible time trying to keep especially the smaller sling enclosures moist once the heaters got going so 
Again, I don't use anything. It's not like I have peat for one tarantula and topsoil for another because I've had people specifically. I get it a lot more on the videos where they'll come up and I'll say, you know, oh, here's what I used for this. And they're like, all right, so is, is that mixture specifically for peat solitharia species? Or do you only use cocoa fiber for that species? Not no, it just depends on what I'm using at that particular time. So I want to make that one really clear. And then the other thing people use and swear by is the peat, which I have to, I'm going to get another bale of this and try it out because a lot of keepers come to me. I've used this for years without incident. And I'm thinking what happened is I just got a bad batch. That can happen. You can get a bad batch that unfortunately has been exposed to some type of fungus or mold. In this case, it was giant mushrooms and the, the yellow stuff that grows into giant mushrooms. It almost look like candy, almost like edible and uh, grow super fast, which is creepy. So, I'm going to probably pick up a bale of that again. I have a little left in my garage I use with the scorpions mostly. I like to mix the peat with sand for some of the dry scorpion species. But I'm going to pick up another bag of that and try using it. I've heard that if you moisten it, it has a nice consistency to it and holds the moisture very well. The issue I have with some of the substrates, and this is the reason why I use the vermiculite, is some of them, as long as you keep them moist, they're fine. Let them dry out a bit and you have a problem. For example, that Lugardi stuff that I've, I've stopped using now, the bag, I have a bag of that that was full mold, but I had another bag that was okay. And the bag that was okay, I had used in a couple scorpion containers that needed it moist. And the top had dried out. Trying to rehydrate that stuff was a nightmare. The water just pooled on it. It wouldn't reabsorb it. I kind of had to take the back of a paintbrush and stick it in there, poke holes in it to try to get the water to seep down into it. It just didn't moisten up uniformly like I would like. And that's one of the reasons why I like mixing my own substrate is because I can create the properties I want. If I know that I'm going to be using it for a dry specimen, then I can put the stuff in dry. It's totally fine. But if I know I'm going to be putting in with a specimen that I'm going to have to be, you know, moistening it down quite a bit, I do play with the layers, you know, mix up some vermiculite. I have some layers that have more vermiculite in it than others so that I get the desired effect of the water you know, basically trickling down and going to the bottom layers because that's what you really want moist. So I will get back to trying the... Pete, again, I also, again, if anybody knows a good source, and with the excavator's clay, I would use it a lot more. It's just when you buy the pet grade stuff, obviously anything for pets, they're going to charge you twice as much as it would normally be. I had somebody that told me a fascinating idea about buying basically kitty litter that's made with that bentonite clay that they use for it. And then apparently there are bags you can get for dirt cheap that have absolutely no additives. It's just the clay that you can crush up or grind up and use. So if anybody else has tried that, uh, this guy seemed very persuasive and knew what he was doing. You know, he's been doing it for a while and I thought that was an absolutely fantastic idea. And if you're here on this podcast, I tried to find the email that you mentioned it. I put clay in the search and I really wanted to mention your name and I can't find it, but that's something I would like to try. So if anybody else has done that, please let me know. I might buy a, you know, the word, uh, word processor. Yeah, it's going to help a food processor and try to grind this stuff up to see if I can do something there because it is very, very expensive. And, and when you get into the substrates and mixing them, it, it does become an added cost. But I would like to find something that I can use for some of the burrowing tarantulas and as well as my scorpions that would have that mixture in it. So that's something you can use as well. And then I've added sand every once in a while. You know, fine sand added to substrate also can help with the water percolating down through. So I've done some experimentation with that as well. I will say the type of sand I was using, the uh, I kind of have the white playground sand, 
and it, I put it in, and it doesn't seem to help very well at all, but I think this stuff is a bit too coarse. i got to get some stuff that's a little bit finer. So when working with the substrates, use what works for you. I think what happens with a lot of people when they get into the hobby, when they start off with the beginner species that require dry substrate, it's not such a big deal. You just use some cocoa fiber, you throw it in there, you let it dry out, you're fine. It's when you start keeping the fossorial species or moisture-dependent species that you realize some of the traits that the stuff you have been using have just don't work for you. And as far as playing with your own substrates and making your own substrates, my best tip would be start trying stuff out before you actually get spiders. Because we've all been in that spot where you get something in and you realize you're out of substrate and you're moistening the cocoa fiber and trying to dry it out or you're trying to mix something up and you realize you don't have an ingredient. I try to keep, if you're getting heavy into the hobby, just be prepared to keep stuff on hand. You can always buy, I got a big Tupperware container that I use to mix it in that I can cover and keep things out of it. And if you're using substrate that's moist and you're keeping it in your hot garage, you're going to want to make sure that you periodically stir it up as to not let it stagnate. You can get, you know, mold and stuff like that in it. So I always go out, like right now, I have big bin of cocoa fiber that I basically moistened up a couple of weeks, actually about a month ago. And I go in every once in a while and stir the whole thing up to make sure that it doesn't get, you know, moldy or stagnant. So in that way, you can keep it moist. You can also use, they have giant Ziploc bags that I bought that I've also used to keep substrate in to keep it, you know, clean and uh, not have any contaminants in it. So whatever floats your boat, but just be prepared to have the stuff ready ahead of time. I would encourage people, it's a fun experiment. Mix some of this stuff up, get them in cups, add the same amount of water to each cup and see how long it takes for the stuff to evaporate. That's what my son and I did several years ago and tried to figure out what mixture I was going to use for my moisture-dependent fossorial species. And it was really eye-opening to see how quickly some of this stuff can evaporate, especially out of that cocoa fiber. So that's it for now for the the dirt talk. Again, if there are any questions, please bring it up. And as always, uh, I'd really like to make these a little more interactive, like as far as people leaving comments on the Facebook page for stuff to talk about. I absolutely love that. It's just a nice way to start it off. It's kind of hard because when I sit down to do these, it's basically like Billy runs out to shop every weekend, and that's my quiet time to get these done because I feel like a goober when she's sitting behind me and I'm talking to the microphone by myself. But what ends up happening is I'm trying to, it's tough sometimes to sit down. I've just barely had my morning coffee, or in this case, it's only half empty. And I'm trying to figure out how to start these off and get into it. And just answering some of these questions and stuff is a great way to just kind of kick it off. It feels a little more natural, like almost like I'm talking to somebody, as opposed to talking to myself when my dogs stare at me in the background. Next up, I've had a quite a few comments lately from folks who are looking to get into the hobby to get over their fear of tarantulas, those are the arachnophobes, the arachnophobic folks, who are hoping to get a, that by getting a tarantula they can get over their fear. And I have a lot of people ask, you know, because I've made it very clear that I originally got my first tarantula partly because of the fact I was terrified of spiders and really felt the need to get over it. The other part was I was absolutely always fascinated by them. So the big question is always how long does it take? And honestly, I don't think there is a, you know, a single answer to that one. It all depends on the individual. Personally, for me, it took a long time. Like, I'm not going to lie. I had that tarantula since the 90s. And it was only when I really got deep into the hobby that I realized that I had less of a fear of them. Because even when I got my first, I remember getting my first two slings and trying to unpack them. And this was several years after keeping my, you know, G. rosea. I was terrified of those things getting out. Like, I remember opening the little vial. I got my two vials from uh, Jamie's Tarantulas, and it was a Lazyodora parahibana sling and a Chromatopelma 
Kyanio Pubison sling, you know, the GBB and LP hobby staples. And I remember that little LP like bolted out of there. And I, it was one of those ones where your heart gets beaten to the point where you feel like you're faint. And this was just a tiny little sling. And I was doing everything in my, you know, everything I could to make sure these things did not come in contact with me. It was that level of, oh dear gosh. But at the same time, I was fascinated by him. So I think that helped me out. Um, it wasn't, I can remember the first time I realized I was finally to a point that they didn't bother me anymore is when my I got my Eulathus species red female and I went to open the enclosure and she started to like kind of climb out as they do. They like to investigate and I just stuck my hand out. She climbed in my hand and it was almost, it took me a second to realize, oh my gosh, I have one of these in my hand. It was that, it was profound because to that point, I had never been able to hold one. I had tried to hold my G. rosea years before, and I've told the story a million times, so I'll spare it again, but it didn't go particularly well, and it might have involved me passing out. So to have this thing in my hand and me not freaking out was just amazing. But it took a while, and even at that point, I remember being in the shower and looking down, and there was one of these little garden spiders had made its way into the shower, and like I, I, I squealed a little bit. It kind of freaked me out because I wasn't yet over my fear of you know, normal, the, the real spiders, the true spiders. So that's something I think people need to be aware of that are picking up a tarantula in, in hopes of getting over their fear. A lot of folks find that tarantulas, and this is kind of interesting and amazing to me, the tarantulas, which are the big, hairy, very, like, oh, these are the uber spiders, they're not scared of them, but they will still remain scared of the house spiders. And I hear a lot of folks, and I think people will agree with me on this, when they're like, yeah, but the house spiders are the, the regular, you know, the true spiders are so much more pointy. They have the pointy legs. There's something about the legs that freak people out. I had somebody that told me that they couldn't keep a bumble cabocla because although they weren't afraid of tarantulas, the bee cabocla reminded them of a true spider, and it creeped them out. So that's something to note, that there are folks that pick up the tarantulas and have no issue. They eventually get over their fear of tarantulas completely. They can handle them. They work with them without issue. But for some reason, they still remain scared of true spiders. So I think that's something that anybody looking to get into the hobby to get over their fear of spiders in general should be cognizant of doesn't necessarily carry over to true spiders. In my case, it did. And I think I'm so immersed in them right now. And I've spent so much time around them and rehousing and working with them and dealing with that. It just, it totally, I had the other day, there was a spider in my classroom, a rather large one, and years ago, I would have done the whole cup inside a piece of paper other and put outside. I just got the thing on my hand and put it outside. It was no problem whatsoever. I didn't even think twice about it. So I'm finally to a point where I'm not afraid of them anymore. Now, again, that doesn't mean, I, I, I think what needs to be made very, very clear is that not being afraid of them means reasonable, there is a spider sitting there on the floor. I'm not, oh my gosh. However... You know, the other day I went to walk out of my garage door. I leave early in the morning. It's still dark and almost walked right into a rather good-sized spider that was dangling from a web in front of the door. And that startled me a bit because, quite frankly, I don't want to get bit. I have been bitten by true spiders before in the past. It's not pleasant. And so there is a, I think, rational will say fear of not being bit by one. I don't want there are people out there. Oh, I don't care. I've been bit all the time. I don't need to get bit by anything. That's not. I've been around animals my entire life, and I I pride myself on not getting bit very often. So that would be something that I think is very normal. But as far as like, I was to the point I was so arachnophobic that when I was really into the hobby and looking up photos of them and putting together my wish list, and this was about the time I turned around the billion and said, Oh my gosh, I can see myself probably having like a couple dozen of these things. 
And I remember looking at pictures of what were listed as a parachute spider or something weird or, or ornamental spider, and it was the piece of Lotharia. And I remember looking at pictures going, that thing is absolutely horrifying. And there is a video out there, which a lot of people have probably seen a YouTube video of a guy handling, I believe it's adult female piece of Lotharia regalis, and it's just like walking on his hands and it's taking those two front legs and waving them out there trying to find purchase for its feet. And I remember watching that thing, like through looking through my fingers, I was so freaked out by it. It was like fascinated and at the same time, absolutely horrified. And I think as far as tarantulas are concerned, that was the last genus of tarantula that I really felt fear when looking at pictures. Like my mother, who is incredibly arachnophobic, doesn't, can't even look at pictures of spiders. Like you can't even, my dad didn't have a phone for a long time and my dad's always kind of had a little interest in the hobby and like what I'm doing. And so I'd send him pictures and stuff, but I have to do it through my mom's phone and she gets so upset with me. So I'd have to warn her, hey mom, hand the phone to dad. Spider picture coming. She won't even look at them. So it's one of those, I was almost at that level where just looking at pictures of them would freak me out. So I think for people getting into the hobby, don't don't push things. The trick is not to push things too fast. I had somebody email me not that long ago that was getting into the hobby, and they're like, I'm getting a Bialbopalosum. I'm looking at it. It's scaring me, but I'm going to hold it. No, don't do that at this point. That's what I did. It almost completely screwed me up because the thing ended up coming at me. I thought it was food. And that basically not only kept me from ever wanting to handle again for a while, but actually re-enkindled my fear of them. At that point, it was like, now that thing was scaring me. I saw those fangs. I, I They scraped against that paintbrush. Like, I was not doing that again. So you got to figure, if you're afraid of them and you force you, you know, a lot of people think the trick is to force yourself to handle it and to force yourself to interact with it. No, do it at your own time. Practice safekeeping first. When you need to move it, don't try using your hand. Use the cup. Just having the tarantula, I will tell you for a fact, just having that big tarantula in that cup, in your hands, whether it's got a piece of cardboard over the end or not, whatever it may be, but just holding it in that manner is usually enough of an immersion into a phobia for most people to handle. The first time I had to rehouse my G. rosea, I remember doing the whole cup thing, and I used a big glass at this point, so a piece of cardboard under it, and I remember holding it in my hands, and my hands were shaking. I'm like, I can't believe I'm this close to a spider. And so I think the trick is, if you're going to get into the hobby, and you're using the hobby to get over these fears, you need to be safe first. Just being around them and working around them, changing water dishes, feeding them, watching them, observing them, helps a great deal. I can tell you that. I would just spend hours watching these guys. Again, kept my hands away from them and just watch them grow. I worked with the slings. The slings reminded me a lot of, you know, your common, you know, true spiders. And therefore there was like a little extra fear almost with those. But then after working with slings for a while, I didn't even care. I remember the first time a sling ran across the back of my hand, I was like in a panic. And then it happened not too long ago. And I was like, oh, sling on the back of my hand, just make sure it doesn't go up my back and get lost. That's my concern was for the sling, not for me being scared. So if you're going to do it, take your time, practice good habits don't force yourself into anything that's not something you know i know there's psychological techniques out there if you go to like a shrink or whatnot where they will try to basically immerse you in whatever you're afraid of to try to get you over it well that's something you do with a paid professional that you're paying by the hour and that knows what they're doing i don't i wouldn't recommend doing that 
just on your own. Like, hey, you know what? I'm going to force myself to get over this. I'm going to get my tarantula. I'm going to pick it up. Well, guess what? If that thing bites you, you're probably done for life for having a fear of tarantulas. You're never going to get over it. If it runs up your arm and ends up on your head, again, you're going to have nightmares for the rest of your life. It's going to do no good. It's just going to exacerbate the issue. So get your pet. Study it. Watch its habits. Feed it. Clean it. Take out the water dish. Change it. Do a rehousing. Hold it in your hands in that glass. Get used to it. What will end up happening is most people, they get you know addicted to the hobby. They pick up more. And then as you start picking up more, you start feeling less and less afraid. The bad part is I have to say, and this is going to sound weird, that I miss that sense of awe and fear almost. Because now it's like I get one of these things and it's just like it's the equivalent of holding a gerbil or a hamster or a ferret or something. It's like a little furry pet. I don't think of them as giant bugs anymore. And I kind of miss that in a way because I can remember just when I was really getting into the hobby and I was getting packages in and opening it up and I remember getting like my OBT sling, like, oh my gosh, that's an OBT, it's, it's going to get me. And, and I, I kind of miss that a little bit. I will say that the, the big ones, the Theraphosa species still, and that's why I think I love them so much, still give me that sense of awe. When I see my big male hunt, there's still that little thrill, like, man, that's a big spider. So... Again, there's no set time period. If you're thinking of getting a tarantula to get over your irrational fear of spiders, congratulations. I can tell you for a fact it does work, but it depends on you know the individual, how long it's going to take, the amount of immersion it's going to take, how long you'll have to be keeping them. But I will guarantee you that I, I, everybody I've talked to that's done it has eventually gotten over their fear. Although sometimes it takes a little longer for the common spiders. For some reason, those little buggers still freak us out. And again, I'm not going to get into the handling debate, but I, I will say that for some people, that first time you handle one and you have it and it goes well, it's a profound experience. You just want to make sure if you're going to do it, it's going to be a good experience because a bad one is literally just going to make you even more afraid of these guys. So that should about do it for this episode. I'm hoping people, I'm trying to break them up a little bit more so that it isn't just me talking about one topic because I figure if I hit a topic that somebody's not interested in, that's you know, 30, 40 minutes of their life that they're not going to get back. So I'm going to mix it up a little bit more. I will be doing longer topics as we go. I try to keep it flowing naturally. So if something's only going to take me 10 minutes to talk about, then I'm going to talk about it for 10 minutes. I'm not going to try to stretch it out into a whole episode. Believe me, there's plenty of stuff we could talk about. And I kind of feel like I'm hitting my stride with these are a little more comfortable where breaking up a little bit, responding to people. So it's kind of making it a bit more interactive. Again, at some point I would like to do a live one. It's just in this house with between the dogs and everything going on. A moment ago we had we have two baby wild turkeys that have been wandering around the house. Apparently their mother got killed. Somebody must have been feeding them, and they're adorable. I mean, they're so ugly, they're adorable. I want to hug them. But they are so tame now that we have a staircase. My house used to be a two-family house, so there's a staircase leading up to a door that goes to my son Roan's room. And he was up there playing Fortnite the other day, and the turkey was sitting on his bed behind him. He had no idea. came right up, went into his door, and sat in his bed. I'd never seen anything like it, and I've been around animals my entire life. So I can just picture trying to do a podcast and having a wild turkey in my house, or the dogs going nuts. Earlier, I tried to do this one, and the dogs, the turkeys go out and they basically perch on a railing right outside my kitchen window, and the dogs see them and go berserk. So, again, it's trying to find a time where I can do this, where I can have fun, be interactive, 
and not have to worry about some catastrophic Moran family household event ruining the whole thing because we can, this is a create it's a fun house don't get me wrong I know sometimes I've had people say I sound like I'm negative or angry because stuff interrupts things it's just you have no idea how many times I have to reset podcasts or videos because of just the craziness of my house and again it's fun I would never change it for the world but it does make shooting these videos uh, shooting the videos and doing the podcast a little difficult at times so that's it for now again if you guys know vendors in your state please help contribute I don't ask for much and um, I'm hoping people bail me out on this one also, very proud to announce that any minute now, I should hit 1 million views on my website, which I am not one to go about bragging about statistics or anything, and this isn't so much a brag as it is just, I'm floored. I can't even believe that a site I started years ago has led to this type of response. I mean, when I, again, when I created Tom's Big Spiders, it was a joke between Billy and I and the family, and I never expected to get any views and to watch that thing. I'm hoping I'm going to catch the moment it hits a million views. I'm just very, very proud of that. This isn't, hey, look at me. It's never a popularity contest with me. And folks and I have had discussions about what I feel about that and the whole you know, personality and just trying to get views for views' sakes. That's not what I'm about. I want to be educational. I figure people will find me and the ones that do usually appreciate what I do. And that's great. But I'm not out there trying to solicit or go, hey, look at how great I am. But I'm very proud of it, and I am looking to do some type of celebratory, I don't know, contest or giveaway or something, which, I again, I normally don't do just because it takes a lot of time to get them going. But I do want to show some appreciation because that, that's really cool. I just I remember showing my mom when I hit 500,000, and she just didn't get it. She's like, I don't understand. There's actually 500,000 people out there that are interested in this stuff. I'm like, yeah, now I got a million. So, again, thank you to all who have followed me on my my website, I really appreciate it. And again, I'm starting to get that going again because that's that's my baby. I, I, I love the YouTube stuff, but the whole YouTube personality aspect of it kind of freaks me out a bit. It's a little weird and um, going to keep doing YouTube and I got a video to edit in a minute and I'm absolutely loving the podcast. I'm going to start posting the podcast links on my page. But I again, I'm just very excited about that. So thank you all of you. I know there's a lot of you guys out there that have followed me from the beginning and, you know, Eddie, thanks so much. And obviously Casey, you know, people that have literally been following and commenting since the beginning. So I don't think I don't notice and I'm not appreciative. And, and there's others and we'll go through it. Melissa, a lot of people out there. So we'll, we'll do a little thing where we talk about that. I think maybe it'll be fun go back and visit the origins of that because they're pretty humble. But anyway, I've rambled on enough. I know a lot of people say they like to listen to these on their drive to work, which I absolutely find amazing. So hopefully, maybe for some people, you'll get to listen on the way there and on the way back. So thanks so much. Please contribute if you know who's selling tarantulas in your state. I'm going to shut up now and finish the rest of my coffee and go do the voiceover for a video on the communals that is about four months overdue. No, it's about two months overdue. So thanks for listening. Catch you all guys next time.